Welcome back to Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast, where we dive into the heart of what makes the property market tick. I'm May Claire Bolton-Smith, your host and curious observer of all things related to property, from affordable housing to market trends and the impacts of natural disasters to climate change. I want to converse about it all. So today, we're going to dive a bit deeper into one of the hottest topics around right now, climate change. Climate change brings extreme weather patterns that are demanding more attention across the property industry. From floods, hail, and tornadoes to winter storms and wildfire, our changing climate is a force to be reckoned with due to its ability to damage structures and uproot lives. While severe weather has widespread consequences, one segment of the industry that's particularly focused on these events includes the insurers and governmental entities that are concerned with insurance-linked securities, or the ILS market. In part, the ILS market is intended to compensate for economic losses arising from extreme weather events and is therefore inherently subject to the impacts that our changing climate has on that covered risk. So to explore this topic more thoroughly, we have Kent David, a senior leader in analytics consulting at CoreLogic with us here today. Kent, welcome to Core Conversations. Thank you, May Claire. It's, it's a pleasure speaking with you. I've, I've greatly enjoyed following your podcast to date and look forward to contributing to it. Well, I'm excited to chat with you about this today. So before we dive into today's topic, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your background and your role here at CoreLogic? Sure. So by training, by education, I'm a civil engineer in the structural field. Um, I've, I've pursued a long and varied career, starting with, uh, with looking at extreme earthquake events and, mm -hmm. and their impact on the built environment. Uh, that led me to... Um, some post-earthquake uh, assessments. It, I went to, traveled to, um, well, I lived through Loma Prieta in San Francisco, traveled to Northridge in 1994 to assist in the recovery, tagging buildings and, and really understanding the impact of, wow. of earthquakes on the built environment. And, and then um, in terms of, of traveling to earthquakes, there was obviously at the time a, a number of earthquakes in relatively short succession. I went to Kobe following the great Hanshin earthquake uh, in 1995. And all of that really drove home to me the importance of being able to recover, being able to have capital adequacy to recover from, from, uh, from disasters. And that led me into the field of catastrophe risk management, which is where, um, where, where I work today. And, and kind of the, the main focus of my team is, is in, in looking at quantifying risk and assisting in the transfer of that risk um, to various various agencies, including the capital markets. Well, we've talked a lot about catastrophes and different aspects of catastrophe risk management on this podcast over the years, but we've not talked about risk transfer and the ILS market. So I'm excited to jump into this with you, Kent, but we're now talking about something a little bit different. So let's start with some of the basics today, because I think you've likely introduced some new terminology that many of our listeners are not familiar with. So what are insurance-linked securities? How do these investments support the property market at large? And we talked about risk transfer. Just can you get into some of these definitions of, of things before we jump into this? Sure. So real brief primer on, on risk transfer in the insurance industry. Um, almost everybody's familiar with their primary insurer and the primary insurers um, write policies covering property um, and pay you for your claims when, when you experience a disaster of some sort, be it a house fire or whatnot. Mm -hmm. When catastrophes strike, those, those primary insurers can have very, very large losses based on, on their portfolios of exposures subject to that disaster. And um, 
the, to to mitigate the risk to primary insurers, make sure they have a- adequate capital to to pay claims following a large catastrophe. Um, reinsurers exist, and essentially, reinsurers provide insurance policies called treaties for primary insurers. So that's okay. a, a, a reinsurer looks at the world through. Um, they typically are worldwide agencies, so they spread their risk um, worldwide and and get paid their fees based on these these large books of, of global books of exposure um, and look at kind of the high levels of loss. So in a, a primary insurer will typically pay the the first tier of of risk following a, a catastrophe where a lot of their policies are impacted, and then okay. the the reinsurer steps in and, and provides them capital. Um, to make sure, so yeah, insurers for the insurers, reinsurers. Okay, no, that's good start to help us with there. So the next one you were going to talk about was insurance-linked securities. Right. So an in, insurance-linked securities are a an alternative form of reinsurance. Now, insurance-linked securities writ large don't necessarily need to be reinsurance. There are, um, it, it's essentially. The difference between insurance-linked securities and other securities are that insurance-linked securities cover insured risk, and they differ from standard insurance in that the provider of the coverage is instead of an insurance company or reinsurance company, it's an investor. So okay. um, an investor will, you know, can, may, you know, if you look at the investment world writ large, um, investors sometimes invest in stocks, sometimes in bonds, um, and and in this case. Outside of the standard financial sector um, investment opportunities, an investor can also invest in through various means that we'll discuss later in the in this conversation. They can invest kind of acting as an insurer or reinsurer. So it's um, essentially an an investor in insurance linked securities is getting an uncorrelated investment so their the investment risk to them is not related to the standard financial markets if there's a market okay. crash a downturn um there the investment in these sorts of insurance linked securities aren't impacted but they are impacted if there's a catastrophe that that um that is related to their insurance linked security investment so you mentioned bonds i think many people are probably familiar with savings bonds but uh, you're referring to catastrophe bonds or cat bonds. And cat bonds are relatively common now, but that wasn't always the case. Can you talk a little bit about their origin and why these, I mean, inherently risky bonds have become so popular? Sure. So as I mentioned before, there's um, if you are an investor um, mm-hmm. with, with capital to deploy, you can deploy it in, in the standard financial markets. Um, and if in doing so you you run the risk that all of your investments may track up or down together um, should the financial markets rise or fall so you know that that's typically the economic cycles have booms and busts you know they can be mitigated but essentially mm-hmm. an investor in in stocks and bonds will see their stocks or their bonds rise and fall with the rest of the market what a catastrophe bond allows an investor to do is to invest in a product, an investment vehicle that pays them significant returns, but it is the losses to it to a catastrophe bond are are conditional only upon the occurrence of a of a def, well-defined catastrophe. So a natural ah, okay. catastrophe, and and that that is a beneficial 
to the investor because it's not correlated to the rest of their investments and allows them to okay. have a, uh, a leveling, a, a essentially get good returns that don't follow the, the, the rise and fall of their other investments. So it's a nice diversifying um, investment opportunity. From the insurance side, so the, the, the people who sponsor catastrophe bonds, there's benefits to having an alternative source of capital to, you know, as opposed to just reinsurers. Um, catastrophe bonds complement the, the reinsurance industry by providing this alternative source of capital for reinsurance. Mm -hmm. and, and also the, the, um, the uh, catastrophe bond is fully collateralized. In other words, the money is stored away that, that forms the basis, the invested money. Um, so should there be a, um, should there be a catastrophe, the sponsor of a, of a catastrophe bond does not have to worry about the counterparty risk of, of for example, a reinsurer going, going bust due to the, the oh, nature of the catastrophe. Okay, that that is that's great. That's really interesting. And okay, but when we started today, we said we were going to talk about climate change, and we have not talked about climate change yet. So I do want us to kind of deviate over to that direction because climate change doesn't happen overnight. We all know that, but there are both long-term and short-term effects that scientists are predicting that will happen over the foreseeable future. How is the ILS marketplace responding to these issues? So it's a really interesting question and phenomena because, you know, as we know, well, let, let me take a, a, a real quick quick step to the side. Most investments that that, that exist in the insurance-linked securities market have a, a term of maybe three years. Some can be longer, some can be one year. Um, okay. So when, when if you're an investor or a sponsor of a catastrophe bond, for example, or other, other insurance-linked security offerings, the time frame for that investment for that vehicle is still relatively short compared to the the lifespan or the time horizons of significant climate change. Okay. That being said, we we believe that we're seeing the impacts of climate change today. So in recent years, we've seen mm -hmm. um, a change in the nature of the frequency and the nature of hurricanes and and the flooding resultant from them. We've seen uh, wildfires in in the in the western United States, which have deviated significantly from years past. We know yeah. that's due to drought and 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 interesting weather, bad you know bad fire weather. Um, that that seems highly correlated or likely to be the derivative of climate change. And you know these sorts of impacts we're seeing um, really across the weather um, the weather insurance industry right now. So right. climate change is certainly a um, a driving force or, or an impactful um, issue that, that, that investors and insurers need to look at today. Um, so how does it impact um, the, you know, the, the, the market? Um, the, essentially, well, one of the things that makes catastrophe bonds in particular um, interesting and different from other offerings that, um, that are out in the market that an investor might, might participate in is that the the risk in a catastrophe bond is is expertized? It means that when when the bond is offered, um, an expert in in the field will characterize and quantify what that risk is. So, mm -hmm. for example, okay. if there's a if there's a, a California earthquake um, catastrophe bond, um, an agency will be hired that will will calculate the risk to the notes and expertize that in the offering circular. And, and what that means is that investors have a good way of looking at what that risk is, 
and they may disagree with that 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 opinion of the risk, but at least there's a, a starting point for the basis of the, um, the investment returns on those notes relative to the insurance risk. Okay. Um, so when we're talking about climate change, what that means is if you've got a, a catastrophe bond that has includes risks that are potentially correlated to climate change, and the investor can look at that and say, well, I, I actually believe that the risk in, for, for California wildfire is higher than what the modeler mm. um, presumed, or that the risk from hurricane flooding is higher or from hurricanes or severe convective storms. So the, the, the nature of the, the offerings um, allows for a difference of opinion on what that risk is. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, and, 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 and so essentially the, the price that's paid for these um, these devices, these notes or, or, or uh, offerings is really a, a negotiated rate that, that both sides can agree on. It, it, it's a reasonable premium for the sponsor of the bond to pay yeah. and, it, and the, um, the investor believes they're being adequately compensated for the risk, again, possibly considering um, climate change. Wow. No, you said a lot of really interesting things there. So I want to kind of flesh out a couple of things and dive in that. So you, you've mentioned that, you know, it's no secret that wildfire season is getting longer. The Environmental Protection Agency has also has recently done a study saying that it is, in fact, wildfire season is getting longer each year. Uh, similarly, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, the IPCC, has acknowledged that the frequency of hurricanes will continue to increase as time continues. We've seen, you know, events are more severe, more frequent, and that is expected to continue because of climate change. Uh, you've talked a little bit about how these type of events are impacting ILS risk, but I, I guess the, the kind of deeper question is, how is climate change influencing the longer term impact from the ILS market? You know, as, as I mentioned before, um, the issuance of a catastrophe bond um, and presumably other, other insurance and securities um, uh, opportunities or investments um, in, involves a, a discussion, a conversation between the sedent, the sponsor, mm. and the investor. Um, and because of the relatively short term, you know, typically up to three years of these devices, right. um, the, the, both parties can, can decide on what that risk really, what the actual premium, what the real risk is. Um, that that exists in the in the in this in the offering um and so you know th that's that forms a basis for the negotiation on what the premium should be okay um it's the the other thing that that really impacts the um the pricing is this current market conditions availability of capital which makes teasing out whether there's trends in um in in the pricing of of weather related catastrophe bonds um, is whether those trends are related to, to um, climate change or whether they're just related to scarcity of capital in the markets. Um, but, but you know, we can see that, uh, that, that weather perils have been behind some, some, some potential payouts in the market. You know, whether the bonds actually pay out or not is, is not public information. Um, there, mm -hmm. have been, there have been bonds that, that have been reported have been impacted by wildfire and severe convective storm. Um, yeah. And what that means in terms of the market as a whole, uh, investors are, are expecting some losses. The, this is just like uh, investing in the bond market. There are gonna be bad days or bad years. Um, 
that and so it, it really becomes a, a negotiation on whether the you know how much they need to be paid to accept the risk right and and then they may have they may change their appetites for different types of, of weather peril risks right so because they have such a short term of usually three years then it is almost more like short-term impacts that they're looking at versus the long-term strategies yeah I think that's fair um, yeah what we don't know is is how quickly these these impacts will occur and there's also just um, typical changes or trends in the in the in the in the weather that that happened before we had climate change and yeah and it, you know the, it, we can look at it kind of looking at it like an oscilloscope or or some way of looking at waves you've got normal oscillations and then you've got trends and probably where we sit right now is that that the both are really important um the the both the, the season to season oscillations that are that are mm -hmm. kind of normal um normal changes from year to year but I think we're seeing also the fact that the, the climate change is is changing those trends. And, and the, the signal seems to be growing that that is indeed the case. Right. OK, so as we look at these trends, one thing we've talked about on this podcast before is disaster gaps. If we have big events and over the last few years, there's been some some really extreme events like Hurricane Harvey in 2017, the campfire which destroyed Paradise, California in 2018. They've really highlighted this significant need for external capital to support traditional reinsurance, really. Uh, so when we think of these disaster gaps, how can ILS help bridge the gap between the capital base of insurance industry and potential losses that these catastrophe events are bringing? It's it's a it's a really interesting question because as much as the ILS community investor the investment investor community brings additional capital to bear and to solve kind of these sorts of, of of gap gaps in the traditional reinsurance market and the insurance market um, they you know as, as any investor or investment strategy would would have there's limits to how much risk any particular investor might want to to. Mm -hmm. Um, to have the, you know, you only have so sure, much perhaps yeah. appetite for um, North Atlantic hurricane risk or uh, or Central United States tornado hail risk. You you, you know you you the, every investor has an investment strategy and that may limit their um, their appetite for certain types of risk. You know, regardless of how okay. they're they're portrayed or even at whatever uh, price. So they may just have a very high price standard in order to accept more. California wildfire risk, for example. So um, the, they do, yeah. The the community, the market does supplement the traditional reinsurance um, market, and we, we've seen that absolutely. That there's that there's areas where it was very very hard to impossible to get insurance from the traditional markets, where it has been possible from the capital markets. But yeah, there there are there are limits to what that interest is as well. Okay. Um, one other thing that we mentioned off the top was the government entities. And I want to talk a little bit about how the government's growing investment in ILS. Um, you know, we have to thank our producer here at Core Conversations who did some research into this. And she she discovered that it was the Mexican government that became the first sovereign government to issue catastrophe bonds. And the U.S. followed quite quickly after. So what currently is the state of the government's growing in investment in the ILS space? Yeah, no, it, it the development there has been been lo a long a long running process, and and it's um, it's 
interesting that you know it's hard to say where it's gonna where we're gonna end up. Um, mm -hmm. Sovereign sovereign risk has been long been transferred um, in the Caribbean. There there's been a series of disaster um, disaster relief type catastrophe bonds meant to support um, the governments throughout the Caribbean from that risk. As you mentioned, Mexico has sponsored cap bonds, mm -hmm. um, and uh, it, it's not uncommon to for um, for for countries you know, to, to sponsor bonds to, su to supply them with immediate capital following a disaster. Um, as you mentioned, um, the NFIP has sponsored some bonds in recent years uh, supporting the, the their their risk follow that would result from flooding in the U.S. and, yeah. and pay out for, for those flood policies. Um, I, I think that the, those offerings have been been well accepted by the market. Um, it's an interesting uh, question, more more a government policy question, I think, than anything. You know, does it does the NFIP look to really gather more reinsurance from the capital markets? How does that fit in with their strategy of of um, of updating their flood policies, et, et cetera? So the, the National Flood Insurance Program, you know, is designed fundamentally to um, to protect investments from in the real estate sector so to support yeah. homeowners who who buy properties that that might be in a in flood prone areas to make sure that their those loans are are viable following a flooding event and and not just the loans but obviously the homeowners can recover from that um, so that that conglomeration of flood risk has grown over the years the NFIP has been highly highly beneficial in protecting the financial services sector as well as homeowners um, related to flooding risk, um, and they're currently involved in updating their their flood insurance policies and programs to better reflect the the changing risk in the area. So, um, do I see uh, do I see the ILS sector as as being fundamental to them being able to do their job? I think the bigger question there is really how does how does um, the NFAP uh, how are they going to update their their policies and their underwriting processes? Is probably more important to their uh, long-term um, success uh, as opposed to just uh, the, the way that they that they receive reinsurance protection. Sure, and and that was really helpful. And I love that you brought up the NFIP because then what you're talking about because that really ties back to our first episode of season two, episode thirty-one, where we had Scott Giberson talk about risk rating two point and really what FEMA is doing to help with the evolution of flood insurance in this country. So I'm glad you you brought that up as well too. So, okay, one thing just to close with, Kent, um, data. Obviously, insurance-linked securities rely on data, and that's something we do very well here at CoreLogic. So, so can you explain why it's so crucial for entities to have the ability to determine the peril and concentration of risks from various other weather threats and adjust their portfolios accordingly? What we're seeing, I mean, it, it is in the the development of losses in the insurance industry, and that certainly impacts the ILS industry, is that um, the developing risks, the risks that are really becoming more and more prevalent, really are what, what I term or what we typically call high definition perils. So mm -hmm. um, following Hurricane Harvey, for example, um, we did a number of studies for, for clients in the financial services sector where um, there was a great concern that there was there would be tremendous losses, a lot of defaults on on loans due to the flooding that that was you know 
well publicized right. and, and quite rampant in the area. Yeah. And and but what we learned is that there is actually um, most of our clients who were concerned about the issue found that their that the actual risk to their loans to their their um, their loan portfolios and the homeowners was much lower than they were expecting simply because um, loans yeah the, the risk to a certain house from flooding varies greatly up and down a street you know at one end of the street it may be very high at the other end of the street it might be quite low due to slight changes in elevation um, different uh, terrain features on a, on a given lot and so b based on the very nature of how loans are packaged and sold and the fact that a flood does not impact the whole region uniformly right um, the the losses tend to be again high definition, so highly variable from location to location, block to block, zip code to zip code, and the ability to capture that risk, the ability to analyze and understand it, and to transfer it really depends on having high definition models, high definition data to capture that risk to differentiate a house that's at one foot below uh, the flood level versus one foot above the flood level. So. Okay. Um, for, so, so you know, high definition per, perils such as severe convective storm, um, flooding, uh, wildfire, all all have highly variable risk and highly variable um, resilience to that risk or or vulnerability to that risk. So, um, working at CoreLogix, it's been very empowering to have the data assets that are needed to capture high definition risk and yeah. be able to differentiate from, from high risk to low risk in a way that's otherwise impossible. Uh, we have parcel data, we have digital elevation data, we have models that capture risk down to a very refined um, area. And, and, it's, it, and this is really empowering with, it, it empowers us to, to capably differentiate and quantify those risks. And that's a great place to end, Kent. Um, you know, one thing I say quite often on this podcast that one of our tag phrases here at CoreLogic is know your risk to help accelerate your recovery. And that understanding your risk through many of the things that you've just talked about really do define that. So Kent, I learned a lot today. You and I talk almost every day and there are so many things I did not know. So this was a really great conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today on Core Conversations, a CoreLogic podcast. It's been my great pleasure as well. Thank you for having me. All right. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed our latest episode. Please remember to leave us a review and let us know your thoughts and subscribe wherever you get your podcast to be notified when new episodes are released. And thanks to the team for helping bring this podcast to life. Producer Jesse Devenins, editor and sound engineer Romeo Roman, and our social media duo of Sarah Buck and Michaela Brooks. Tune in next time for another Core Conversations.